I remember the first preseason game when I had the uniform on, I'm on the field looking up at Qualcomm Stadium. We called it Jack Murphy Stadium back then because that's how old school we are. And I'm just looking up at the stands, and I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, I'm not saying anything, but I'm in my head like, God, I used to sit right over there and watch Charlie Joyner, Dan Fouts, Wes Chandler, you know, like all these guys. And I'm looking at my helmet, Charger bolt on there. I'm looking at my uniform, and I'm like... I'm in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. I'm playing for the Chargers right now. All right, I'm not going to mince words here at all. This is no question one of the most fun conversations I've been able to have for Hodinkee Radio. Sit me down with someone who's extremely talented, surprisingly humble, and unrelentingly nerdy about their passions, and I'm basically good to go. That all perfectly describes this week's guest, Donnie Edwards. Donnie grew up in San Diego, California, played football at UCLA, and ended up spending 13 seasons as a linebacker in the NFL. He even got to spend five seasons playing for his hometown San Diego Chargers. But beyond being a world-class athlete, he's a serious watch nerd, and I mean really serious. The dude was deep in the Panerai community going back to the 1990s, and he can rattle off reference numbers like it's nothing. He's been to the Valley du Joux, and he's into everything from Rolex and Audemars Piguet to brands like Patek Philippe and JLC. He's also a firm believer in the power of watches to bring people together and to create communities. I could have talked to Donnie for hours, but he had a flight to catch, and I didn't want to be the one responsible for stranding him in a rainy New York City overnight. But don't worry, he'll be back on the show again soon, no question. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinkee Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to uh, good to have you here. Thanks for having me on this rainy New York uh, Thursday. Yeah, yeah. You didn't uh, you didn't bring the California weather with you. That's okay. We had it earlier. Now I'm leaving, so I can take it with me <laughs> back what, to California. What uh, what brought you to New York City for this trip? Uh, here working with the NFL. So as you know, I played in the league for uh, for many years, and uh, since I retired, I started working with the NFL Legends community. And what it is, it's a um, it's uh, former players that are helping out other former players transition. So there's a whole bunch of benefits services. Um, available to guys to tap into to be successful when they get done, you know, when they get out of the uniform. Yeah. I, that's something I think a lot of people don't think about and don't necessarily realize is, you know, for a lot of these guys, like y- your career f- that you think of as your your lifetime passion ends when you're, what, in your 30s yeah. sometime? If and you're like, lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky, I mean, the average uh, NFL career is three and a half years. Wow. So imagine when you start at 21, 22 years old. I mean, you're looking at 26, 27 years old and, you know, it's over. And now you're trying to, you know, figure out, okay, what's next? Well, my whole entire life has been about, you know, playing football, practicing, you know, making it to this game to play. And sometimes that's taken away from you from injury, from skill or from whatever. And now you have to like try to figure it out. And I think the tough part um, that people don't realize, especially for athletes or any type of like, you know, entertainer, um, people have been like taking care of you your whole entire life. You know, I mean, even like going to UCLA when I got my scholarship to UCLA, someone helped me with my application. I don't even think I did one. You know what I mean? Like, so all along the way, people are holding your hand because you're playing and they want you to be there and yeah. to, you know, and, and then all of a sudden when you get done playing, you know, <laughs> you're reaching your hand out. There's no one there. 
And sometimes that's a little scary, a little vulnerable for guys because they don't know what to do, how to do it because you've always been taken care of. So that's a big wake-up call for a lot of guys, especially in their mid-20s when they have to like, you know, start figuring things out for themselves. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder, is, is there any sort of, uh, maybe not trend, trend's probably the wrong word, but are there certain paths that guys tend to take when they leave the league? Are, are there certain career paths or certain trajectories that you find tend to be paths of success for, for guys coming out of the NFL? Yeah, I think a lot of times people just look at the big name guys, you know, because most guys, when they get done playing, there's two avenues to really that guys like myself go down. Um, it's TV you know, talking football on TV, or it's coaching, right? There's the two avenues. And the other avenue is the unknown avenue that you have to try to, like, navigate yourself and try to figure out what that is because there's really nothing that's really conducive to, like, you know, what we did on the field that 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 um, translates into a certain profession besides those two. So sometimes it's a little scary. If you don't want to get into, you know, those two professions, I mean – then you have to try to figure out, okay, what's next and how do I go about it and where do I start? You know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, now you're in your, if you play three and a half years, now you're in your late 20s and you got to start all over. You got to start back in the coffee room and like work your way up. You know, unfortunately, you get some type of opportunity. So sometimes it's difficult. But, um, you know, with the NFL Legends community, it's really nice because we have a whole bunch of services available to guys and benefits that, most guys don't really look at when they're playing because you're playing. You don't need them, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, after five years, when that insurance runs out, because you only get five years of health insurance when you get done playing. And people think we have lifetime medical, you know, after playing football for 30 years of my life and having all these injuries. And I'll show you a couple here. There's my finger Whoa. right there. <laughs> oh, okay. There's my finger. Okay. That finger should not go the direction. No, it shouldn't it be. No, it shouldn't be. But. You know, you start to grow up quickly because when that insurance runs out and you got to figure out, okay, how do I get insurance? Like, we never had to, we never had to even think about it because it always was done for us. You know, we had insurance since forever. And all of a sudden, like, you know, you don't have insurance. You get that letter. It's like, hey, do you want to, you know, pay for COBRA? And, I mean, just these, these decisions that you have to learn, you know, you have to kind of figure it out. So we have a whole bunch of assistance to help guys. Um, navigate through their second part of their career. And it's been wonderful, actually. Um, I've been very fortunate to be on the ground floor. I've been doing this for six years, helping guys with transition, but also helping myself as well. Yeah. Because when you get done playing, unfortunately, you lose, you lose your purpose. And, you know, you, you're waking up and you ask yourself, okay, so why do I wake up now? Like, what am I doing? Where am I going? You got to have some type of destination. Yeah. And unfortunately, when that's taken away from you, it's a, you know, it's a challenge for sure. And then the biggest thing I think is you lose your identity. Who are you? Who are you now? You know, right. I used to be that all pro football player, <laughs> but that's not who I am now. And sometimes that's very difficult psychologically. And uh, it's been difficult for, you know, for some people. And obviously you, you've heard about the, um, you, know, uh, the, the, you know, the suicides that we've had. And uh, we try to learn from that and try to um, help each other out. And I think it's important that we do it with the brotherhood, the NFL brotherhood, guys that were there, guys that were in the, you know, in the trenches that can speak the language, that can help out and reach out. And I think it's, it's good now because we're all talking about this now. It's not yeah. something that men didn't talk about before. Now we're trying to talk about it now. And I think other 
uh, entities that are so masculine, like, like, like NFL football, they're talking about it now. And, you know, you have to realize we're just human beings too. You know, we have feelings as well. I know we've been conditioned to be tough and to be brutal our whole entire lives, but we do have feelings too. And is it, is it something where the, your work starts at the end, like at the end of the career, or do you start to preempt that transition with some support to say, this is what's kind of laying ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Can you prepare for it, or, or is it more like when when they when they start to enter the last week, the last month, they get a couple pamphlets or the, maybe maybe an email from from the the organization? Like, how, how, what's the what's the thinking behind that? Well, it's a little days? bit different because um, most of us that stop playing in the NFL, it's because it's not that because we don't want to continue to play. Because if I can still play right now. I would still play. You For know, sure. I love the game and I love the competition, but unfortunately that's taken away from me. And at a lot of guys that's taken away from them at any moment through skill or through injury. Mm -hmm. You just never know. I mean, people don't realize this. You talk about some of these hall of famers, Peyton Manning got fired. Joe Montana got fired. Jerry Rice, Emmett Smith. These guys didn't leave on their own. They left because the team didn't want him anymore. So it doesn't matter who you are, unfortunately, that can be taken away from you at any time. And so, most of the guys still want to play. So then all of a sudden you're thrown into the fire and you're still holding on thinking, okay, I can still play. I'm going to wait. I'm going to keep working out, keep training because a teammate call me. And then, you know, after 12 months, <laughs> after 15 months, after two years, you're still working out, you're still running, you're still ready to go, but you're still waiting for that. You're waiting for that call and unfortunately not getting. Then you have to start thinking about, okay, I think this is past. When do I move on? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very challenging and it's very difficult to do it by yourself. I, I want to go to the other end of the career. Like what, what was the time when you were growing up where it clicked, where it stopped being like, all right, I'm going to go out on the field and play football. I'm going to have fun with my friends. This is my community. And when did it become maybe this is who I am. Like, maybe this is my, my job. Like maybe, maybe I can make it. Maybe this can be my life. When do you remember first kind of having that feeling? I was in college for sure. Because honestly, for me, I mean, I'm not very big at looking at me right now. Like this guy played 14 years in the NFL. No way. <laughs> Middle linebacker, not a shot. I think I'm like maybe 200 pounds right now, soaking wet, about 199, I think. I don't know. Hanging around there a little bit. But um, I've always been like the tall, lanky, skinny guy. And uh, playing linebacker at the time, there wasn't linebackers that were my weight. I mean, I started at UCLA when I was 180 pounds. So there wasn't like linebackers that, number one, looked like me or had the same body structure as I did. But, you know, I, I got opportunity at UCLA. I started as a freshman, a redshirt freshman, and uh, started playing and, you know, made a uh, All-American and uh, All-Pac-12 or Pac-10 at the time. And all of a sudden, I started getting letters from teams that were looking at me, you know, and it gave me some some hope and some confidence that, hmm, maybe I do have a shot to make it to the NFL. Because I know a lot of these guys that I've met in the NFL are big. These are, these are men. Yeah. <laughs> these are big guys, yeah. you know, and I'm not that at all. I mean, I think the most I ever got to in college was 215, 210, around there. So I wasn't very big, but once I started getting letters from teams I, and I realized that, hey, I can play this game. I may not look like the stereotypical linebacker or football player, but I can play this game and I can make plays. You know, because I went into it as, you know, this is an opportunity for me to go to UCLA, first of my generation, to go to college, to get my degree. 
And, um, you know, and football is my, my path to get there. I didn't think I'm, I could make a career out of it. Um, so for me, I was really uh, focused on my academics. So I really, um, you know, worked hard on my schooling because I figured I got to take advantage of this because, you know, I'll never make it to the league. And uh, I ended up graduating early, and I'm going to graduate school uh, when I was still at UCLA playing ball. And, you know, lo and behold, um, I realized that this is something possible. In my last year, my senior year, I decided to stay in. My retro senior year, I decided to stay in school and try to get higher in the draft. And unfortunately, second game in the season, I broke my back. So here I am going into, you know, here all this stuff. I'm, you know, <laughs> I've already graduated, and I decided to stay in school. I'm in graduate school to play another year to try to mature out a little bit, you know, get some weight on my bones and uh, have another, you know, great uh, college year and end up breaking my back. And I just thought all my hopes and dreams are all gone now because no one wants a skinny linebacker with a broken back now. Um, and they made me start looking at a lot of different things. And lo and behold, I got another opportunity at the end of the year playing a senior bowl and played pretty well in that game and ended up getting drafted in the fourth round. You know, even with the broken back, um, not, but not bad at all. Wow. Well, it all depends on your expectations. I mean, I was pretty pissed off, you know, and I still carry that grudge to my whole entire career because I think that I've always should have gone high, higher in the draft. But you know, you can't make people draft you. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know what I was and ended up, you know, starting early on in my career. You know, first year in my career in the NFL, and the rest is history. Probably a lot of guys who went higher than you in the draft who did not have careers like that. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, but there's yeah. some had some great careers as well. But you know, I think every player wants to go in the first round. Um, I was definitely uh, thinking that I was going to go in the first round. I mean, I, but who? Uh, what year were you drafted? 1996. And so, who who was drafted in the first round? That people. Oh, there's might a lot know. of guys, a lot of Hall of Famers. You got Ray Lewis, oh, linebacker. Yeah. yeah. So I just named some of the linebackers. You got John Mobley, great linebacker from yeah. from Denver. Um, Randall Godfrey, great linebacker. I had an opportunity to play with him. We both were born on the same day, which is cool. Wow. That's neat. Um, Zach Thomas, Zach Thomas from Miami. He was a heck of a linebacker. I mean, there's so many, there's so many guys. I mean, this is the same year we got, um, Jonathan Ogden. Mm. You got Terrell Owens. Yeah. I mean, you got some, definitely some Not players. Not a bad draft up. class. No, it's a great draft class. And it was a good, you know, it was a good year, but I still felt I should have gone higher, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you got to be able to play football. So yeah. they don't care what round you go in, as long as you can play the game of football, you can survive. And yeah. you know, lo and behold, this little skinny kid, you know, skinny linebacker, made it through. <laughs> and you you weren't drafted by your hometown team, no. but you ended up playing for your hometown I did. team. What I did. what was that like to be able to like go back home and be like the kid who made good? You know? Yeah, it was actually great actually because I'm you know I'm Native American and. My two favorite teams, I was born and raised in San Diego, were the Chargers, of course. And my other team was the Chiefs, you know, Native American, the Chiefs, the, you know, the Chop. I mean, I was like, those are my two favorite teams. And being drafted by the Chiefs, I was really excited, really happy. And then when Marty Schottenheimer uh, went over to San Diego and I became a free agent, um, I said, well, this may be an opportunity for me if they need a linebacker. But they already had Junior Seau there. They had some linebackers there already. Lo and behold, you know, I got a contract offer to go to San Diego. Like, this is like a dream come true. I mean, I'm born and raised in San Diego. I grew up watching the Chargers. I mean, my whole entire room was decorated in Chargers. I was one of those kids, and I always had a Charger shirt on or something. I used to hang out at the training camp in, in, at, at UCSD. I mean, honestly, like, this was like a dream come true. And it was pretty interesting, too, because I ended up, you know, playing with Junior Seau. 
back in 2002. And he's also from San Diego. And, you know, here's another hometown kid that plays linebacker that went to USC. I went to UCLA. But here we are together, two homegrown San Diego um, guys that are playing for the their hometown team. We grew up watching. And it was just surreal. I remember the first preseason game when I had the uniform on. I'm on the field looking up at Qualcomm Stadium. We called it Jack Murphy Stadium back then because that's how old school we are. And uh, I, I never forget, Junior was right there to my right, and I'm just looking up at the stands, and I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, I'm not saying anything, but I'm in my head, like, God, I used to sit right over there and watch Charlie Joyner, Dan Fouts, Wes Chandler, you know, like all these guys. And I looked at the scoreboard, and I'm thinking, wow. Like, I used to watch the Padre games here, and I'm looking at my helmet. I'm looking at the field, and I'm looking at my helmet. There's a charger bolt on there. I'm looking at my uniform, and I'm like, I'm in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. I'm playing for the Chargers right now. And it's funny because I'm all in my head. And, and I mean, you have to be paying attention to see where, you know, I'm looking around and doing this stuff and everything. And I'm in my head. And then and Junior's over there and looks at me. He's like, it's crazy, huh? I'm like, <laughs> he got it. Yeah, he saw me. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. He's like, yeah, this is really great, man. Congratulations. Welcome back home. And uh, did it feel like, right? Like it, like it felt, it felt like you'd you'd kind of closed the loop. It felt awesome. It felt you know it felt awesome. I was just like, I, I'm really happy that I took in that moment because even now that I'm retired now, looking back, I know what that felt like. You know, full circle because, you know, starting off at the beginning, and going full circle and being on that field and playing and starting and you know, um, it was actually you know it was, it was comforting. But uh, at the same time, um, it was motivating as well, you know, because I wanted to do my very best. I wanted to show off. I wanted to, like, For make sure, sure yeah. that I'm the best on the field, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I belong here and that kind of stuff. So it was great because I remember after that, he's like, it's crazy, huh? And I looked at him. He's like, yeah. And then he just said, you know, some some words and, you know, slapped me on the ass. Let's go. You know, yeah. time to go to work, you know. So, yeah, yeah it was just – it was wonderful. Like um, – Looking back to that, it's just one of those moments in my career that um, I felt like this is cool. You know, this is some young kid's dream to, uh, you know, to grow up watching a game of football, especially in his hometown. Go on to UCLA, you know, the same school as, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, John Wooden, you know, Troy Aikman, and many, many others. And to actually be on the field and playing with, a guy you grew up watching, Junior Sal, on the Chargers. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's a dream come true. So it is possible. That's why when I go back to San Diego and I talk to the kids out there, it's like, man, like, you guys are the ones that can make it happen. The players come from right here in these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I came from this neighborhood. So always say that it's possible. Never say that it's not possible because you can do it. If you want to do it, you work hard, you put your head down, and you get it done. That's awesome. <laughs> I could I could honestly sit and have this conversation for like the next three hours. Uh, but I know people will kill us if we don't talk about one of the reasons you're here, which is your watch guy, which we got tipped off to through a, a mutual friend and uh, colleague of ours. But uh, how did how did you get into watches? You know what? Honestly, going back to even when I was a kid, I always, always, always had a watch on, and I always loved watches. Always. Not a jewelry guy at all. I'm a watch guy. And it started off when I was a kid. I mean, it, to the very photos that I have from sixth grade graduation, 
had some Casio on there, you know, but I had some type of watch on. And looking back, it's always been something that I've always been really passionate for. Um, and only until, um, I want to say, when I got my first contract, there was a couple of things that I wanted to do. And everybody talked about that, that, that you made it timepiece. For sure. You know, and like back when I was growing up in the 90s, I was a Rolex. You know, you buy your first Rolex, it's like you made it. That Absolutely. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, you know, and, and I really wanted to, um, you know, as soon as I made some money, it was like there's a couple of things. I wanted to buy my mom a car. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get braces. Okay. <laughs> and the third one was get that Rolex. You know, like, congratulations. You know, you worked hard and you made it. So it's always been something that I've always been, uh, you know, really passionate for, you know, love. And that love has just grown tremendously over the years. What car? What car did you get, Mom? I got her a van. My mom had nine kids, okay. so <laughs> she needed a van. I mean, I'm the second to the oldest, and everyone else. I mean, I think there's like a 20 year age difference between mm -hmm. my oldest and the youngest. Okay, so we had to get her a van, man. Or I should have got her a bus. Actually, uh, maybe a bus. It's <laughs> <yeah. laughs> probably why I don't have any children. <laughs> but yeah, I took care of a lot of kids, so I got my mom a. It was like a I don't know some type of minivan or something back in the. This is like mid-90s you know? gorgeous yeah. plymouth voyager or something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's exactly wood, what it was wood <laughs> paneling on the side something like that yeah, yeah. yeah. fantastic yeah. now it had been some type of like suburban or something yeah like it's that. great but at the time it was great yeah that's got to feel pretty awesome yeah it is you know honestly um you talk about the whole circle and you talk about you know just a kid with a dream and um and that's the great thing about this country too because you know there's so much opportunity in this country and for someone like myself who grew up um in challenging environment, a very challenging environment, and uh, especially with the current uh, surroundings, you know, pretty negative, and being able to filter your way out of it and navigate, navigate yourself through all the stuff and to to make it and be successful, to have an opportunity to do, you know, number one, to do it right. You know, there's one thing about buying things and not doing it the right way, you know, where that and where the funds come from. But to actually like put your head down and work hard and do it right, it's pretty comforting. For sure. And it's a, there's like an affirmation that like you put that time in and then not only are you able to maybe get the Rolex or something, which is more of a personal mm -hmm. achievement, but to share that with a family, with family, with people that like supported you, that made it possible to... Uh, the, the, I wouldn't really say that. It's a little bit different in the family yeah. like that. You know, you don't want to be showing off like that, especially when people are struggling. Yeah, you know, yeah. but well, I just mean like it, in, in terms of the van for your mom, like it, it's nice, it's nice to be able to be in a position to, to help out, have your dream yeah. reflect on those yeah. around you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To help out, to have an opportunity, you know, to have an opportunity to help out. Mm -hmm. That's what it comes down to really, you know, but in terms of the watch for me, it was like something personal for me. I didn't tell anybody, yeah. you know, it just, it was something for me, you know, I'm laying in bed, it's kind of... <laughs> checking the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, what, it's just, what was the watch? A Rolex Daytona. Oh, Zenith movement. You there know? you go. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, for sure. Oh, that's no. A hell, that's a hell of a first watch. Yeah, 5500 bucks. I never forget. It might have been forty five or five, It was around $5,000. I'll okay. never forget. Yeah, I bought it in Kansas City back in 96. Um, still have it to this day. Of course, I'm never going to you know, uh, you know, get rid of it. It's just really special to me when I look at the watch. and It, it brings back a lot of memories, and it kind of sums up a lot of hard work, too, and a lot of work that people don't see. Unfortunately, like, you know, people just see the – finished product they see the cake they see the game on sunday you know like wow that's awesome but they have no freaking idea how much hard work goes into making it look so easy on sunday 
or the product or the watch or what, whatever it is. This bot, they have no idea but the kind of work that is involved in that, you know. Yeah. And for me, I know how much work, you know, and you know how many hours spending extra because I'm skinny and not very strong in the weight room so I can keep up and, you know, and, and run and, you know, and just all this stuff just to take care of yourself, to make it happen, you know, and it's kind of nice to know that you made it and you had this, 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 this timepiece mm-hmm. to validate, to say like, you know, you did it. A little you did token. It, you yeah. did it the right way. Yeah. You did it honest and you did it the right way. And with, so you started with that Daytona to kind of mark that phase, that accomplishment. Where did you have other watches that kind of marked other, other, uh, well, I gotta lines? say, uh, I created <laughs> that watch, created a monster. <laughs> Isn't that how Which it goes, right? It created yeah. a monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I got really heavily involved in, in, in all sorts of type of watches. Um, you know, and that was just a Kickstarter for me. And, you know, and the second watch, I think I had a, a Cartier Pasha and some other ones in, you know, in between for sure. Um, that's what I ever think, uh, Cartier Pasha. Yeah, but, and then in 1998, I'm walking through Florence, and I'm a big guy at the time, you know. Now I'm in the NFL. Got some money, started eating some good food and taking protein shakes and got bigger, <laughs> been lifting some weight. So probably like 230 now, and I'm a big guy, 6'3". And I was walking around uh, Florence, um, and I saw this. And I saw this watch. Um, there was a guy on a submarine. He was straddling, straddle, straddling a, a submarine, and I saw this big watch, forty-four millimeter. And I'm like, Panari? What is Panar? Panari? Panari? You know? Mm-hmm. And I walked in there, and uh, I liked it because it was kind of cool. I just saw the marketing. I saw the, you know, because I'm, you know, I love the military, and I saw the watch. I ended up picking up a watch. And I end up, you know, grabbing a forty-four miller, uh, a forty-four meter, forty-four millimeter, Panerai. Um, and I remember they had a whole bunch of, uh, <laughs> um, they had a whole bunch of uh, previs up there. And I said, nah, because there were so many of them in a small box. I wanted the new, you know, A series watch, um, Pam One A is the one I got. Kind of kicking myself for not getting a two hundred one A, but you know I want something. Oh, we didn't have one of these, but we have a whole bunch of those. Oh, I want the one, you know. But looking back, you know, anyways. But yeah, that's kind of how it, it, it kind of grown and kind of started, and you know, and then all of a sudden I just started geeking out on it and started doing some research and trying to find it out, and then you know, we can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so not, so you you did this in ninety eight, right? Yeah. And this is something we talk about on the show pretty regularly, but like back in ninety eight, it wasn't as easy to learn and go deep as it is now. I mean, now you find out there's a cool watch. I want to learn more about it. You Google it. You can find as much info as you want. In 98, you get this Panerai. You decide you want to learn more. How do you go learn more? How, what was that process like? Well, I used to hang out in the shops a lot, actually, because I think uh, Tourneau started carrying it back in 1999 or, yeah, right around there. So when I went back, I was so pumped up and and I started to learn more about it. I started hanging out with um, the um, the regional directors. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, you got to meet this guy. You know, this guy's like, you know, this guy loves watches. And we started talking watches, started to learn more. And then going to Italy and going to some of the other um, authorized dealers and talking to guys and started getting, you know, oh, you got to get this. And he starts showing me the books and things like that. Some of the history, like some of the stuff that you don't normally see at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I started learning more about it and like, you know, you know, some of the history, the old pieces, pre-Vendome, Vendome, and that whole history with Sylvester Stallone and all this stuff. So I'm like, wow, this is really cool. So I started, like, 
getting really into it and you know trying to find out more and more information and at the time i mean i was collecting a lot of panerais and my wife's just like what are you doing all those watches look the same <laughs> i'm like no honey you don't understand this has a blue dial this has a like you know this has a sweeping second hand like this has a you know so you know it's the geek in me, right? Classic About, watch guy move. Exactly. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm like, no, you don't understand. But she's like, oh my God, they all look the same. I'm like, no, they don't. Anyways, so um, after a while, around 2000 or 2001, um, I was just, you know, online Googling, I guess. Well, I don't think Google was around. It was probably like uh, um, Internet Explorer at the time. <laughs> Alta Vista. Or something yeah, like yeah, that, right? Cubes. Yeah, there's something else. I forget the other one. Um, but uh, yeah, I just came across uh, some information on uh, Panerai, and I found uh, the Panerisi community. And uh, I've been a part of that community since the beginning, I think, 01, I think it was. And started um, finding guys I talked to all the time on, uh, you know, online. And it's interesting, too, because looking back, there's so many of my best friends that I talk to now that, you know, are part of my, my family of friends all around the world, all because of, Panaristi and, and Panerai and this community of watch, hmm. you know, nerds. Yeah. And it's it's pretty unique, actually, because um, at the time, you know, you started to, uh, you know, conversate with people online, and you never really meet them in person, and then you get an opportunity to meet up. So I remember uh, there was a guy named Davey Lee. He's out of California, and I met him probably 01 or 02. No, it, it was definitely 2001, and I remember I was buying a... Uh, uh, Pam 9A or 4A from him. It was a Trinian uh, PVD um, at the time. And uh, he says, hey, I'm in L.A. I'm like, oh, I'm in San Diego, L.A. too. So let's link up. Okay, cool. So I have him come by my house, and I have to do like an autograph signing or something. So I have to leave. I was like, oh, man, I got this opportunity. I got to leave. I said, just stay here, and I'll be back in an hour and a half. Well, my wife comes home, and she calls me. She's like, hey, there's uh, there's a Chinese guy in our living room sleeping. You know who this guy is. I said, oh, don't worry about him. That's Davey Lee. Yeah, he's tired. Yeah, I'm like, oh, don't, don't worry about him. That's Davey Lee. He's like, where do you know him? I said, oh, I met him online. What? You met him in a chat room? I'm like, yeah, I met him in a, yeah, I guess, a chat room. Yeah. You never met him before? I'm like, no, I never met him before, but I know him. How do you know him if you never met him in person before? But I said, I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? I know so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. from online relationships and never meet in person. But when we meet in person, I already know this person. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we get along and everything. So that's the way it was. I mean, this guy's been a, a great friend of mine for 18 years, 19 years now. You know, and that goes for so many other guys. You know, Ossie and Eric and, and Jeff Hess and, and um, John Sim. And, I mean, there's so many guys. Yeah. For sure. You know, all around the world. I mean, and no matter. Like a very tight community. Very tight. And at the time, it was very exclusive, like early on with, you know, Philippe Bonnet. Uh, he was the, um, the, the Panerai North American um, uh, director. And he's the one that would bring us all together. We had events early on, and it was kind of like our own small little clique, our small little, like, community of, um, you know, of guys that spoke the same language that get it. You know, they all didn't look the same. They all looked different to us. You know, and it was really special because um, he kind of helped put the community on the map, especially for America, North America, because he used to bring us together for Panerai events. And then this is when we get a chance to meet the guys that we talk to online on Paneristi, and we see them in person. And we start to develop relationships from that, you yeah. know, which is really special. I mean, the, the thing that people may not understand if they're listening and, and they're, you know, let's say that they're 
watch appreciation is in the similar ages of Hodenki, like say 10 years or something mm-hmm. like that, is like not only like for you to be getting into Panerai at the late 90s, like Panerai was on the come up. They were back from a really kind of harder time. But mm-hmm. that's still a very obscure brand, even in the world of watches, like the, a very small brand um, with a lot of like growing power, but mm-hmm. like still just so much potential. Like people know Panerai now as like a shorthand to kind of bigger watches to an, a whole aesthetic. But that it wasn't like that then. There weren't no. blogs covering it. You had to be, if you really wanted to be deep into loving this brand, you had to be part of the, this community. Absolutely. I totally agree. Because there was nothing else like it. I mean, there yeah. was nothing else like it. All the other forums out there, the most active forum, time zone, was the Panerai. It was all about Panerai at the time, you know? And it was really special because we talked about other watches as well. I mean, that's where I got a lot of my my watch knowledge is from, you know, from, from talking or from reading online and, you know, reading your articles and things like that. I mean, that's how I learned so much and being around guys that speak that same language that want to discuss it and talk about it. It's pretty special. This you know, it's like great. F- Cause now all of a sudden I have someone who wants to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, you, you're I think so, we've all suddenly... had that feeling. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Like, it's that feeling where you're, you're super excited about something and you're just looking for somebody else to like, when you tell them Share how excited it. you are, yeah. to be as excited, they not to yeah. look at you and be like, yeah, but they're whatever. Like, it, it's, ni- it's nice to have those communities, whether it's watches or football or, or whatever, food but certainly or food wine, where, yeah. where you skip the, the like 60% of explaining mm-hmm. why you're into it and you just start with what's cool. Right. Yeah. You, you jump over all the parts <laughs> that you have to explain to like what I would explain to my parents or something like that. Uh, like, now they just kind of, you know, like accept it. <laughs> um, but then to, to be able to, to, to have all those shorthands, that inside community, that language. Mm-hmm. Um, so you skip all the parts that everybody would know because they're on the forum. Right. And you move right to these deeper relationships that are connected to these totems, to somebody's success or to the, a brand's design or a brand's history or, or things like that. And they become these kind of personal things that are not only attached to people, but like the, the watch internet 15, 20 years ago is a whole different scene. Yeah. It was the wild, wild west. It was very clicky. It was very, like, you had to be part of the team. And there were all these sorts of ways that people would know that you weren't, you were faking your way into it or you were born somebody yeah. else's pictures. Right. And there was, it was a lot of, like, like there was right. a lot of um, internal vetting going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what that made were these really strong bonds. And, and the people that were in these communities are all-stars when it comes to knowledge now. They're the guys oh, that are yeah. writing books. Oh, yeah. Not writing for uh, a, a post for a Hodinkee. They're writing, like, they're writing books. Yeah, and they're getting books published, and 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 like Valker and Rolf, they yeah. wrote the, the yeah. you know the Panerai Vintage exactly books. Yeah. yeah, these are these are so these are deep, long-standing collectors that existed before Panerai was the hottest thing on some actor's wrist. Um, maybe with Sly being the exception because he was very early into that brand and 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 kind of that brand's resurgence and rebuild. Um, but it, you know, it's it's a it's a really fascinating thing in that as the internet became ready to foster these sorts of communities, Panerai was ready for kind of a, a rebirth. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's definitely a brand that rode that wave. But the first post I ever wrote about a watch was about a Luminor. It was. In 2008. I was late. Wow. I was late to that party. <laughs> wow. But 08, yeah. yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the height actually for, you know, for Panerai and Panderisti with our community where it was so much activity. I mean, now it's changed so much. I don't think I even go on the site anymore because there's so many different platforms now i mean i can't really keep up with anything but it's probably like i want to say 2005 2006 was when it was like the height i mean you had 201 a's going for like 
80 grand, mm-hmm. you know, like everybody wanted a Pam a 20, logo. Pam 21. We're going for like quarter of a million dollars. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, looking back, it's, it's crazy because a lot of it's excitement for sure. It's supply and demand and, and, and some of it's kind of manufactured too. Like the, the excitement of, of something, you know, it could be manufactured, you know, by people just, you know, pumping it up, talking about it and exclusive group of people have something that you know when it came out like the 201a wasn't a very popular watch and then all of a sudden it became rare watch and everybody wanted it and it's like they don't you know what i mean so it's interesting how that you know kind of you know works itself out because you know when you start really thinking about like the movement and how does that translate to the dollars and things like that it's just you start to think a little bit yeah you know yeah speaking of movements i know you got you know beyond panerai you got into some other brands that are more uh I would say like technical brands, more technical watchmaking. I know JLC is is a brand you're really into, and you've you've actually gone and visited them, right? In the, I have. In the yeah. Valley. Mm. What was that experience like after being into watches for for years to kind of go see go see where they're made? Yeah, that was really special. I went there with a bunch of like you know my 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 watch family guys. You know, like I said, like you know now, I mean after 20 years of it's interesting. I mean, sorry to cut. I mean, no, no. I make a little change, but. I think about some of my best friends right now in the world has come from the watch community. It started with Panerai. Like Panerai was like the, the, you know, the object that brought us all here you know, they all brought us here and we, you know, we had a certain language. I mean, it's people from all over the world. I mean, when I was in Kuwait, I ran into a guy that I met online and he picked me up from the airport and went out to dinner and I know him, you know, like we had a relationship and, I'm halfway around the world in Kuwait, you know, which is really cool. That's a special, that's what's so special about like this timepiece. And we always say it's more than a watch, you know, it's more than a watch. That's what brings us together. And then from there you start to develop relationships outside of the watch and you have commonalities and there are certain guys that you gravitate towards. And like I said, I have friends all over the world, all over the world. doesn't matter where you go. You have friends like all over the world, which is, you know, which is remarkable, which is really special. And from that, you know, you have um, friends that introduce you to other brands. Like, hey, have you seen this Longue? You know what I mean? Like, let me show you this. You know, this is, but you like bigger watches, Donnie. You know, he starts showing me like, oh, wow, this is cool. The movement, the dual, you know, like you start to like learn about more about something else that you would traditionally wouldn't, wouldn't learn about, you know, which is pretty special. So, I mean, yeah, it just, as you keep growing and you stay in that community, you start to learn about other brands and other movements and other things. And uh, JLC was one. And we all had an opportunity um, a number of years ago to go to uh, the headquarters and see it firsthand and how things are made. And you really have a, a really appreciation. When I was there, you know, with my gown on and everything, and my, and my you know, breaking down, taking apart an eight-day movement. I mean, wow. You know, and I got pretty good eyes, but that's just some serious good eyes. And you start to really appreciate the artwork and how things are made, and like it makes you feel so good about wearing this timepiece on your wrist because there's so much that goes into it than what you see on the wrist. Like I was talking about earlier about the game on Sunday. There's so much that goes into the game that you see on Sunday. It's the same thing with the watch. One thing I want to make sure we talk about is, you know, we talk about communities and it's it's something that seems to be a, a through line for you. You know, growing up, the football community, the watch community, um, and something you're you're really active in, I know, is is philanthropy. 
and giving back to your your community. Can you talk a little bit about your work there? You know, not just with the NFL, but kind of outside of the NFL. Yeah, see, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, growing up <clears throat> in San Diego, a lot of people reached out and helped me. A lot of people in the community came and helped out. You know, guys like myself. Like I'm a product of the system of people giving back and making a difference and coming to talk to us. I was that one kid that was listening. And, uh, you know, I've been so fortunate to get educated, to have a great career in the NFL, um, which provides me this platform to give back. You know, it gives me a, a choice in my life to not have to do something because I have to do it, but to do it because I want to do it. And uh, for me, um, I started a nonprofit um, called Best Defense Foundation. And what we do simply is we honor and recognize our military. And we do that a number of ways. Uh, one in particular way is we do battlefield um, returns. And for the last 14 years, I've been taking World War II veterans back to where they fought and served, wow. taking them back to the battlefields. And it's been really, really special. I mean, as you guys know, this year's, you know, this is the greatest generation. Some of the guys that, you know, that helped make this country what it is today, you know, not only this country, but the world. And they're still here and they're still alive. And for me, just a chance, you know, happening conversation to taking, you know, veterans back in 2006 and not knowing what to expect and if they even wanted to go back and, and after we did it, the experiences that they went through and the feelings that they had and what was so important for them to find closure, to go back with their brothers and a camaraderie and their brotherhood, I thought, wow, this is amazing. So on a small scale, I was doing that for a while, even when I was playing ball. So when I was playing in the NFL, I was, taking, I was bringing veterans to games to have them honored and recognized for their service. And uh, once I retired, I mean, you talk about transition, trying to figure it out. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what I wanted to do. You know, do I go back to school? Do I, do, I mean, you really don't know. And, and I wanted to do TV or coach, but wasn't really feeling that. And um, one of the World War II veterans that I was talking to is like, just follow your heart, follow your passion, and you'll find your way. It's a good tip. And, yeah, it's a great tip, but okay, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy thing to tell somebody. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But then, like, you know, you start thinking about it, and then, you know, I started to uh, help out. Um, and uh, bring more veterans back, you know, because I have more time on my hands now. Now I'm retired, so I have more time on my hands. So now I'm taking, taking more veterans back to the battlefields. I mean, not just Normandy, but, you know, all over the place. And on a much bigger scale, you know, taking 20 plus, 25 plus veterans, World wow. War II veterans back, you know. So I've been doing it for a long time, and then I decided it's about time that, you know, I do it on my own um, and, you know, be the captain of my ship. And, and, and we incorporated Best Defense Foundation um, from all the work that I've been doing before, but just kind of put under one house. You know, I've been born and raised in San Diego, big military town. You mm -hmm. know, my grandfather is a, a Pearl Harbor survivor, Native American Apache Indian, and he gave me the foundation of country, flag, patriotism, and opportunity. And I never forget, he says, he called me boo-boo. He's like, boo-boo. He's like, Remem he said, remember this. No matter, you know, um, um, if you want anything in this if you want anything in this life, you have to work hard for, and you can do it here in America. In America, you have opportunity. If you work hard, you can achieve anything you want to achieve because of what we did. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I was so young to understand that, but it made sense. You know? So for me, the military has always been like a backbone in my, in my life, and I want to make sure that we recognize and honor that we have the freedom that we have and this opportunity that we have in this country and in this world because of 
the men and women that that defended this country. And I want to make sure that you know our greatest generations that that they're all in their twilight years of their life right now, that we salute them all the way on the way out because they never had a chance to find closure. You know, this generation, when they got back from the war, everybody served. It's, it's not like it is now where you got like less than 1% of our population that serves. You know, it's like we don't even know. But back then, everybody served. So no one wanted to hear your story. Oh, you're in the military? Oh, so was I. Yeah, so was Josh. I was Uncle Billy, you know. And they all went back to work. Mm-hmm. They got the GI Bill. They went to school. They had jobs. They, they raised families, and they went back to work. Fast forward 70 years, they never talked about it. They tied their head down, living life. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, you got some attention focus on it with, with um, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, you know, and, and um, um, some other books that came out. And people started to say, wow, look at what these guys did. Mm-hmm. And it started to put a focus on it. And we started to recognize and say, hey, you know, we owe it to these guys, you know. And that's what we've been doing. I just brought back, um, we just brought back 16 World War II veterans to Normandy for the uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day um, just last month in Normandy, France, which was really, really special. Um, there's a bunch of videos online on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, Best Defense Foundation. Um, just hey, we'll, uh, we'll link those up so yeah, people can see that. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm really proud of it. I mean, these are the guys that did so much for us, and it's the least that we can do to honor them for, you know, for their service and sacrifice to this great country. I mean, there's a number of veterans that we took back that have never been back in 75 years. Some of them didn't even have a passport. Yeah. They said, hey, well, I didn't need a passport when I was there 75 years ago. I'm like, well, <laughs> well things have changed now. Yeah. You need a passport. A little different. Yeah, but it's really special for them to go back and see all the love. I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of people there just to shake their hand, say thank you, because we've never been occupied. The French, they were occupied. So these are the liberators, and for whatever reason, they pass it they pass it down from generation to generation. So from little kids to, to grandparents, they all remember. And it's really special to have these World War II veterans back, back in the same place where they fought and they liberated those towns. So it's just really, really special. And I'm just really honored to, you know, to have this time and this platform to give back. And, uh, and one of the other programs we're doing is, you know, the transition program is really important. And, uh, you know, being in San Diego, we have our Navy SEAL um, headquarters down there, and uh, we have a lot of a, a number of Navy SEALs that are uh, transitioning out, and they're staying in San Diego, and we need to find ways to help them. So we are um, establishing a program there to do the same thing we're doing here in the NFL to uh, to help our Navy SEALs and our Special Forces transition back into civilian life. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link we'll link all that up. So if anybody wants to get involved and help out and do what they can, we'll uh, we'll we'll make sure the links are in the in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Awesome. Of course. Thanks so much for coming in and doing this. No, but, I appreciate uh, the time. I mean, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, it's been great. Um, thank you very much. You guys awesome. keep, no, it's great. Keep up the great work because uh, you know we're all we're all reading, we're all watching, and that's how we get a lot of our knowledge and know which ones to get. <laughs> no, no pressure, James. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. You it's got been it. A treat. Thank you. This week's episode was recorded at Hodinkee HQ in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate this show. It really does make a difference for us. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.